Hi, I'm your host, Brittany Spence, and this is In the Face of Illness. We are a podcast committed to cultivating a greater understanding of the many resources available for families facing childhood illness, because we believe this is a vital topic of conversation, not only for families in the throes of the fight, but for everyone. Ultimately, we are here to offer hope in the face of illness. Carlos Torres, Ph.D., is a California native but has lived in Memphis for the last 10 years. He came to Memphis to work with leaders in the areas of bereavement and trauma at the University of Memphis, where he earned his doctorate. Dr. Torres directs the Family Assistance Program at Labonner, which provides support to families of hospitalized children and helps them make sense of and make the best of the challenges that come with the child's diagnosis and treatment. We are honored to have Dr. Torres here with us today. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you for inviting me. Um, This is extra special to me. Dr. Torres and I have communicated by email and even on the phone Mm -hmm. in regards to um, families and some of their needs, but we've never met in person. So glad to to meet you in person and to have you here in our studio. It's too bad it took so long. I know. That's right. (laughs) I know. Um, we're, We're fingers crossed that, you know, as some COVID regulations lift that we will be able to be back in the hospital more often. Yeah. Um, so let's just talk a little bit about your role. So we talked about sure. how you're at um, Le Bonner. Tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about your role and what that entails. Sure. Well, it's a really interesting role and it's fairly new-ish. So this position began about four years ago. I've been in this role for about two years, so the latter half. And it was conceived when um, some physicians on the NICU realized that the moms needed extra help that the social workers simply couldn't offer, not because of a lack of competency, but just because their caseloads were already so heavy with everything that comes with being explicitly a social worker. So lots of postpartum depression, acute stress, of course, a lot of anxiety. And so the idea behind this role is to have a psychologist enter the hospital and work directly with the families, typically the parents of the hospitalized patients. And so for me, that takes on a variety of manifestations. Um, So I'll have either a social worker or somebody else in the care team reach out to me and say, Carlos, there's a family that we think would be worth your time. They're in a lot of distress or, you know, that they've asked for some help. So I'll go in, um, I'll introduce myself, I'll introduce the program. And my role really is to become whatever means relevant to them. If it's simply a listening ear and we talk about what it means to be there so often and they're trying to make sense of the diagnosis, Um, they're trying to figure out how to create a balance between being at the hospital, going back home with their kids. That's what we talk about. I've got some parents that maybe already have some history of uh, utilizing mental health services. Um, And so they're looking for something a bit more like a classic therapy session. Absolutely. We can create some treatment goals and work towards them. Um, Some parents just like a check-in every once in a while. And they'll readily state that part of their experience there is one of isolation. You know, they'll look out that big window and see the world happening. And there they are stuck in those, you know, four walls covered with medical equipment that they can't understand. So really being a psychologist there, you know, goes from just being a a good listening ear to, you know, using a bit more that comes with what I studied and becoming an expert in. Mm -hmm. Gosh, what a gift. I mean, just thinking about my own experience there and then the experience of 
that I've had mentoring families yeah. and just seeing, like you said, the isolation, the Absolutely. loneliness, that feeling that the world is continuing and yours has stopped. Absolutely. And how do you make sense of that? You know, Absolutely. and how do you, how do you even, how do you even understand that? And, mm-hmm. and, you know, we always say this new normal, what That's does that right. look like? That's right. And, you know, unfortunately for, for many of the parents that I work with, they'll identify multiple griefs. Um, the grief of not having that normative birth that they were hoping for, you know, having that intact family that they just had recently and is now fragmented because half is at home, you know, some are in the hospital. But then they'll state, I also didn't expect to not get the support that I thought I would have. So I reach out to family, I reach out to friends, and they try to be helpful, but because they don't get it, they don't quite meet my needs or they're just unfortunately absent. And that's really difficult for me. So you know, it's a very difficult reality with layers of complications and messiness. And it's very easy to feel overwhelmed in that space. For sure. And have you seen, is this as a whole, a newer kind of program that Mm -hmm. hospitals countrywide are starting to do? I mean, I feel like as a whole, our world Mm -hmm. and our community is, mental health is becoming not Mm -hmm. such a you know, stigma word that you don't talk about. It's becoming more and more that it is so important to talk about your mental health, your well-being. And so is this, I know here at Le Bonheur, you said four years Mm -hmm. and you've been in the role too. Mm -hmm. Is this something that you're seeing throughout the United States? Unfortunately not. Um, There are some programs that have developed something similar. Many psychologists um, will work within a NICU, but within the NICU only. Whereas again, my role is hospital-wide. so reasons for that might be, well, practically, we also have these difficulties at Le Bonheur. Um, I work with everybody that's not the patient, mm-hmm. right? So what does that mean in terms of documentation and billing and all of that that comes with running a hospital? And so trying to create some wherewithal and sense of how to execute it properly, I think, is difficult. And we're certainly kind of learning as we move along, too. Yeah. yeah. Um, my hope, though, just like you stated, is that this will grow because we're becoming more aware, but also I think more accepting that mental health issues are real. They're not just something you sometimes hear about. They're something that we can all experience ourselves and doing it silently is just not a good idea. So we, we need those folks out there that can offer some kind of resource. And, you know, I think for a lot of the people that I've worked with, the the physicians, nurses, et cetera, they'll tell me that looking back, it seems absurd that they never had that before, Mm -hmm. you know, that it is this recent, you know, how could we have not offered parents this kind of support? Because really they were always struggling and we did see it. We just didn't realize that we should respond to it. Yeah. 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 And I wish that that is something that could go because we know just here in Memphis, St. Jude has psychologists on staff, Mm -hmm. quite a few, Mm -hmm. correct? And Mm -hmm. so... But at St. Jude, they work primarily with the patient. Right. Correct. And so that issue you're talking about Mm -hmm. of, you know, at a children's hospital, Mm -hmm. obviously the caregivers are not the patients. Right. And so that is an issue in itself Mm -hmm. of of how to figure that out. Where at St. Jude, the patient, you know, is obviously the patient of the hospital and so a little more easily able to work with the child. Mm -hmm. Um, And in turn, I mean, I think about even in my experience with uh, child life, Mm -hmm. you know, my son was so tiny that really there wasn't a lot that he could glean Mm -hmm. from child life, Mm -hmm. but I did. Even though I wasn't the patient, Mm -hmm. child life helped me so much 
with knowing how to mm-hmm. love and take care That's and right. be the the mother and caregiver I needed to be, even though technically I wasn't the patient. But in turn, it was doing a blessing to the patient. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, what I often tell moms on the NICU is that we're all wired for connection. We're all wired for attachment. And showing up with that intention to love their child is so, so powerful. Yeah. And I think a lot of times... um, parents, especially in the NICU, are afraid to move forward loving their child because they don't want to harm the child. Again, they feel overwhelmed. So it's important just hear from a multitude of people that they're being enough. They're being good parents simply by being there and being present. So, and like you've just mentioned, um, the parents then becoming a bit more at ease, becoming a bit more open does benefit the child because then there is more proximity. There is just more of that interaction. And do you, in your role, only work with families that are hospitalized? Correct. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what about like a maternal fetal? They've been recommended to the maternal fetal center at Le Bonheur. Mm-hmm. They've gotten a bad diagnosis in the womb. Mm-hmm. Is it have to be that once the child gets to the NICU? Correct. Unfortunately. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So there there are some pretty, um, I don't know what to call them. Um firm boundaries to the folks that I work with. So it's the families of the hospitalized child. And then after discharge, um, this is why I've leaned on y'all so heavily to continue offering parents um, some form of of a mental health resource, some form of a therapeutic space, because once the family is discharged, that's where our work unfortunately does stop. And there there are many reasons for that. Um, A lot of them kind of fall in the practical category. It would just be difficult for me being the sole person at the hospital to try to work with folks that have been discharged while trying to also attend to those that are in the hospital. Again, going through those initial waves of shock and just confusion. Yeah. So let's just do kind of a, um, you know, if, if I'm a family, Mm -hmm. you know, I've just gotten, let's say, you know, really either way, I'm, I'm, NICU baby has come in, traumatic birth, things didn't go well, they've been there, mom's struggling, or even the other, you know, a a lot of the PICU children of trauma, you know, ATV accident, car accident, again, life upended, have no idea what just happened. Mm -hmm. Yesterday was normal, today is not. And so they're showing some struggles. Mm -hmm. So what you hope is that the care team notices that, Mm -hmm. sees that, Mm -hmm. and they ask for you to come and meet with them? Absolutely. So um, maybe the easiest sort of example would be on the NICU because we've, uh, so we've got some really fantastic physicians on the NICU that are very pro mental health support and we started screening for for postpartum depression. And so the social workers will take that duty over of um, inviting mom and dad, if he's present, uh, to take the screener. If they pass that threshold number indicating severe symptoms, then they'll reach out to me. But also... um, in their initial interaction with the family, doing a needs assessment that's very typical for social work. If they get any idea that the parent is just feeling overwhelmed, and sometimes the parent will say, hey, do you have anybody that I can talk to? I'm just feeling really alone here. Then they'll reach out to me. Um, At this point now in my two years, a lot of what I've been doing is, uh, I I call it being nosy. I'll go on the floors and walk around and just chit chat with uh, folks that are on the care team. I oftentimes have really interesting conversations with parents on the elevator. Yeah. Um, so just people kind of generically know that Carlos exists. Yeah. There's this person that does mental health stuff. That's all I need, right? Yeah. If, if you just have that in your head, then you'll figure out how to get a hold of me. Yeah. And so um, 
Yeah, you know, having as many eyes on these families as we can is important because they'll present differently to different people or at different times of day. Right. Right. You know, so I've got one nurse who's really good about letting me know that the previous night um, one of her parents was experiencing a panic attack or wasn't sleeping and was pacing the room crying, you know, so maybe this is a family to talk to. Yeah. So um, it initially began with the social workers um, really taking on that sole ownership of contacting me. But at this point, anybody who's noticed something that seems like distress is uh, very much invited to contact me. Uh, and we we had uh, two of the NICU social workers on our podcast, and we talked about those tests mm-hmm. and how you know that can be such a good component of figuring out where a caregiver is, often the mother, but can be the father, mm-hmm. and getting a read mm-hmm. on how are they doing? Mm-hmm. How are they handling things? And sure. I think I loved hearing them talk about that because I think these are just more things that Labonner is doing. Right. And I know other hospitals as well, but that Labonner is doing in order to really figure out where these families are. How are they doing? Exactly because, right. you know, the the old saying, if mama ain't doing well, nobody's doing well. Sure. But it is true. Absolutely. And, and I see that even in, you know, my relationship you know, with my husband or my three healthy children that if, you know, you can't pour out from an empty cup. That's exactly right. And so if your cup is empty and even more so if your child's in the hospital and you're trying to balance the family back home and there Mm -hmm. and then finances Mm -hmm. become such a big thing. I mean, you talk about where they say all those big stressors that are, Mm -hmm. you know, make such an impact on Mm -hmm. how a family's doing. I mean, the financial, the health, the well-being, the job, I mean, all all those things. Mm -hmm. And so I love that there's a, not that every test can give you clear cut. Mm -hmm. Obviously, moms and dads can choose not to fully express everything that they're feeling. But our encouragement and hope is that they will, Mm -hmm. so then they can get the help that they need. Yeah. And, you know, there's something in that that I think is a really important point worth mentioning. A lot of the parents that I talk to um, have experienced significant trauma prior to having a hospitalized child, but they've never received mental health treatment. And so a lot of the work that I do coming in is trying to as gently as possible explain that I'm not there to label them as crazy, to minimize them in any way, you know, diagnose them with anything. Um, It's simply to try to understand their experience to see how I can be most helpful, most, most relevant to them. And I think for a lot of parents, the best benefit that I can give them is to destigmatize people like me mm-hmm. so that when the child is discharged and they're still trying to figure out what it means to move forward and live life in this new way with this new normal, that they'll be more open to reaching out to a counselor, a therapist, et cetera, to help them if they think that that would be beneficial to them. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, Well, what drew you to this role? Because I think it takes someone really special to (laughs) choose to go into a field that is a lot of, of hard, um, hard stories Um, especially when you talk about that you came because Memphis was, had the leaders in the bereavement and trauma side. So obviously you're, you're drawn to those kind of things. So what drew you to that role? What's kind of your story? Sure. Okay. Um, I'm going to take a couple of moments to take a very long story and try to give you the, uh, (laughs) you know, the, the Cliff's notes version of it. Okay. So, um, was very close to my dad. And um, I began college studying, actually, uh, aerospace engineering and physics. Wow, okay. So this is back in California. Um, 
And uh, my dad had had some heart issues before, but things that he got over just fine. Um, the summer between my freshman year and the beginning of my sophomore year, I was at home back in California working. Um, and my dad suffered a major heart attack and just died. Wow. So, so sorry. huge, huge change. Again, we were very close. I always knew that dad in my head, you know, had some illness stuff going on, but you know, I was a kid and I didn't really think much of it and he was there reliably. So there's nothing to worry about. So that sudden shift just tore my life apart. Um, so I went back to school, began my sophomore year. Um, the first semester did exceptionally well because I was just burying myself in, you know, coursework. Um, winter hits, December hits. So it's Christmas. I go back home. You know, it's Christmas dinner without dad really hits me, really clarifies what this lost really means. I go back to school and I just start tanking. I'm not doing well. And so, okay, I, I'm obviously not in a good headspace to continue doing school. So let's take a little bit of time off. And in that time off, I was trying to decide what I wanted to do with my life. Does engineering really make sense? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Um, I decided though that I would go back home um, and live with my mom because, you know, her husband had just died. Mm -hmm. At that point, I think close to 30 years. So I decided I, I needed to figure out what I would do. And I didn't want to go to school just yet. So I started volunteering um, at this. I'm from San Jose, California and Santa Clara, California. This wonderful organization called the Center for Living with Dying. Mm -hmm. um, volunteers are just asked to sit with the bereaved and hold space with them, whatever that looks like. If the bereaved individual wants to share a story of their deceased loved one, if they simply want to weep. We are there with them. And I decided I would do that simply in my head because it was like, uh, well, I liked having people that would listen to me. I could do that. Why not? I mean, it was a very sort of simple story in my head. I wasn't expecting much out of it. Um, and the first few clients I had, I remember this very clearly, were very different. So you can't see this in the podcast, but I'm a Hispanic male and brown. <laughs> and the, 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 the very first guy I had, you know, I was in my at that point, 20, I think, right? So the very first guy I had was this 65-year-old white guy, um, very large kind of trucker-looking guy. I'm this skinny brown guy, and I'm sitting there with him, and we just start talking, and we start sharing our experiences of grief, and it just envelops into this wonderful thing that then develops into this amazing conversation. Um, later that week, I had another client, and this was a, a, a bereaved mom, uh, Mexican-American like me. And so we were able to connect on some of our Catholic beliefs and all of that. And I was really struck by how different these folks were, yet how not difficult it was to remain present. Mm -hmm. And then it just hit me like a ton of bricks. I don't know exactly what form it's going to take, but Carlos, this is what you do for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. This is it. You know, you, you got to figure out how this space becomes something that all, you know, give you the money to buy food and all of that, but you keep coming to reliably. So I then figured out doing psychology would, would be a way to get there. Um, and as I started looking around, um, that's when I found out about Robert Niemeyer, the professor here at the University of Memphis. Um, he's no longer here in Memphis. He's moved out of state. But um, long line of publications looking at how people make meaning of their losses, which was something I was already really interested in. Um, and so it seemed like a really good idea to apply here. Well, I did. Obviously, I got in. And yeah. in my work with him and my experiences in, in Memphis, that really exposed me to all different kinds of losses. Um, 
what it means to lose a, a loved one through suicide, homicide. Um, I conducted my dissertation work at St. Jude, so uh, parents losing their, their children through, through cancer. And so all of that, I think, just opened me up to the multitude of ways that we can lose, but also continue living afterwards. And so I take all of that and I, I try to use that to just keep me present when I just, you know, meet with anybody, whether it's grief oriented or just, hey, let's hear your story oriented. Well, thank you for sharing your story of um, losing your father and just what made you really go down the road of psychology sure. and going all the way to get your doctorate sure. and to come to Memphis all yeah, the way from California. Yeah, yeah. Um, how's your mom doing now? Well, she uh, just moved here. She did. Yeah. So part of my Memphis story is meeting my wife and having uh, two seven-year-old twin boys. Oh, uh, and so, of course, grandma wanted to be very close to them. So she, she lives here now. So she's doing well and she's much happier that she gets to be with them. She doesn't, she ignores me now, <laughs> but she spends time with them. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that makes me sad. Are you an only child? No, I've got a, a older brother. Okay, yeah. okay. Um, well, I, I too, when when my husband and I decided to um, put full roots for him to take his job here in mm. Memphis, uh, pretty quickly my mother also came <laughs> um, because I had the three children sure. of the yeah. of my siblings, and so she very quickly came as well. Um, <laughs> I unfortunately lost her three years ago, oh, and I'm so yeah. um, you know, just same in the way of just you know it it. Any one of the things I do love about the Good Grief Center too is just how much they work on the loss of a loved one. Absolutely. And I think what you said too that, you know, losing my son and then eleven years later losing my mother, they were very different. Mm -hmm. You know, they were very different in the in the realms. My mother was young; she was only sixty eight. Oh yeah. But you know, but there was a little bit of, I am supposed to be the one. Mm -hmm. You know that that. My mom is supposed to pass before me. I am supposed to be the one that kind of takes care of her, right. you know, in her dying days. Right. And um, even though it was unbelievably hard, mm -hmm. um, but there was that realm of going through losing forced 11 years before that, that I've talked about of just, I, it didn't necessarily make it any easier to grieve her. But the waves, you know, instead of right after the loss of a loved one, you feel like right. those waves just crash on you every, yes. every, you can't even take a breath. That's right. And with Forrest, I remember just thinking, they're never going to. I'm never, yeah. I'm drowning. I'm yeah. just going to keep drowning. And then eventually over time, you start to see that they spread out a little bit right. more and more. Mm -hmm. They're, they're hard because you don't know when they're going to crash. Right. And they crash uh, often for me, the most inopportune times sure. a wave will crash and I'm just taken down by my grief where in the beginning, you're just kind of constantly thinking it's going to crash at every second. I've got right. to stay afloat yeah. when later you're starting to think I'm floating, I'm doing okay. And then it crashes. And with my mother, I at least knew that there was going to be some reprieve or some, breaths being able to take right. that I had hope, yeah, you know, that, that I was going to survive this right. where with Forrest, there really was so much of, yeah. I've never felt anything like this. I've never right. felt pain like this. Right. I've never felt deep, just aching sadness. And will this ever go away? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so just that, I think there is something, I don't want to say beautiful about it, but there is something that all of those that have, all of us that have lost loved ones, we share in that. That's right. We share in grief. We share in 
heartache. That's right. And, you know, not that we can ever say, I understand what you're feeling Mm because what you went through at 19 with your father is very different than what I went through at 38 with my mother. Um, But we both know what it's like to lose someone we love. That's right. Yeah. We both have some understanding of the transformative process that comes with this very powerful grief experience. Um, And I think what you've described so beautifully is the process the majority of us go through, um, that at first everything just feels so hopeless, so wrong, so broken. And then over time, we don't spring back, but those broken pieces sort of reconfigure and become something else. And we've, we've changed. We've gotten a new understanding of the world and of ourselves and what it means to love and how to love. And I agree with you. There is beauty in that. Yeah. Yeah. And you hope too. I mean, I tell all the time in our story that who I was, you know, the, the day before I went into labor with my son is not anything like I am today, but what I hope, and and there are parts that I think, you know, could still definitely be smoothed out. Sure. I still got some rough edges that, you know, hadn't been, but I do hope when people look at my husband and I, that it is a, there is a beautiful picture from his death and his life versus they're so angry. They're so mad. There was no beauty from that. And, but I think again, so much of that is being able to speak with others who can help us normalize it and feel the feelings and walk the walk Mm -hmm. and, and um, and just being someone that's there. That's and right. obviously you have way more training than I do. My major actually was in psychology. Oh, um, my major was psychology with a minor in elementary education. Oh. And then I got my master's in elementary education. And so just recently, mm. one of my kids was like, what's that mean, mom? What's it mean <laughs> to have a degree in psychology? And I was like, I chose it because, and to this day, I mean, it's an 18-year-old and now as an over 40-year-old, I love people. Sure. And I love people's stories. Right. Yeah. I love how people are made and designed and yeah. why do they think this way or act this way or do yeah. this way. And so I think that really has helped even in my role of the mm-hmm. fund of yeah. the way one person reacts right. in their child being hospitalized or sick is different than another. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean one is good and one is bad. That's it's exactly just right. different. Yeah. Um, well, tell us a little bit about what you would hope. So I think one thing we haven't touched on is mm-hmm. not only do you um, work with caregivers, you also work with staff. That's right. So tell us a little bit about that part. Sure. Um, that can take a variety of forms. I think the most common way that I'll work with staff is conducting or leading uh, debriefing sessions. So we'll have a particularly difficult death. Um, the Moments leading to the death were just very difficult, but then on top of that, um, the patient might have been there for a while, so the staff got to know the family pretty well and became pretty fond of them. And so losing the child in this way, knowing that the family is so heartbroken in turn really impacts the staff. And so holding a space where we can openly discuss how our work affects our very personal lives. And notice that I'm saying us because I'm leading these spaces, or at least, you know, conceiving them, but I also participate because yeah. I also get affected by things. Um, and again, my my 
main interest with a lot of this is how we make meaning, how we make sense of such difficult events. Um, I really am drawn to that. And we all have to make meaning. We all have to make sense. And just because somebody is a highly trained expert doesn't mean that they lose that psychological need to make sense of an experience. And so somebody might understand the medical reasons to why a child passed, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't break their heart. It doesn't mean that it doesn't activate some other part of them that can produce fear or dread or anxiety. And so in the same way that I just try to be present with a family member, I try to create a space where we can all listen to each other and be present there for ourselves. Um, we all need to be seen. We all need to be heard. And when we feel safe enough to do so, we let, we let out some of those pieces that we hide away because they seem unreasonable they seem like they're going to be fodder for, for, for judgment. But when they're put out there, we can more actively rearrange them to make sense of them, to include them in a story that we want to have. Um, sometimes it's just so scary to say, I'm hurting a lot right now, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. perceived weakness and all that, especially, you know, with highly trained physicians mm -hmm. and all of that. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a big way that I work with staff. Um, other more practical ways, sometimes we'll talk about communication strategies. So we've got parents there that are very anxious. And for some of them, that anxiety translates to um, becoming a bit more curt with the uh, staff. And the staff might not know how to take that. They might not know how to react to that. They might not know how to help the parents put those defenses down so they can present some really important uh, medical information. And so what I'll do is I'll, I'll work with the staff in regards to... Um, communication strategies, things like that, how to manage their own reaction, and in turn, how to communicate in a way that's effective and relevant for that parent or that family. Yeah, man, that is amazing. Um, it, I am longing for the day to get, you know, back into the hospital and be able to mentor and, and love on families. And it just truly is music to my ears to hear about the things that you are doing, because really, you must have come on right at the start of COVID. Kind of ish, yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. Um, and so I feel like we kind of, as as far as being in the hospital day to day kind of thing, yeah. missed each other. But so many of the things that you have stated that you have talked about are things that the parent mentors often tried to right. do yeah. or sit in on or express. Or um, I know I sat in on a couple um, meetings after the child had died, where they came right. back and all the caregivers got together right. and they went over you know, kind of the findings of yeah. either the autopsy sure. or what happened. And I remember sitting next to a family and the amazing um, surgeon and doctors, you know, were trying to explain, but they were explaining it right in a way that those parents truly could not sure. understand. They just weren't um, in that place. Yeah. And so I really felt like it was such a privilege that I was able to say, okay, stop for just a minute. Yeah. Let's try not to use so many medical words. Yeah. You know, let's just say, okay, you know, this happened in the, the brain, right. this happened in the stomach, this happened, this, or, um, you know, let's just, let's try to put it in a way that it's yeah. a little more layman's terms sure. where they can understand and giving the parents space to ask the questions without yeah. being afraid yeah. that they were going to be looked at as, why do you not get this? Why right. do you not understand this? Right. Or that the parents really, like you said, their reaction yeah. really was more of just this, I'm still so unbelievably shocked right. and sad. This is not what I thought was going right. to happen. And letting the the staff see 
this is my, my husband. Actually, I love my husband says this. So my husband, when new residents come into um, onto his service, mm-hmm. he always says to them, Tuesday for you is a normal work day for you. You're going to see so many different things in the hospital and it's really truthfully going to be just another work day for you. Mm-hmm. But for this family, their whole world was just rocked yeah. upside down. That's exactly right. Their child's leg is being operated on. Their right. arm is being operated on. Their spine is being operated on. They were in a terrible ATV accident yeah. where you've seen this one case 40, 50, 70, 80 maybe even just 10 times, but you've seen this case. And so sometimes feels like, oh, just it's that case again. But to this family, it's everything. It's everything. And their whole world is rocked. And I love that David says that to them, because I think it does put you into that frame of mind of, yes, we hope that our doctor has seen this more than once, that we're not his first patient to ever see this and that they've experienced this and they feel confident in it. Mm -hmm. But that they also still remember that whether it's my child is getting their tonsils out, right. getting tubes in their ears, right. or they're having major spine surgery yeah. or brain surgery, that it is still scary Absolutely. to them because yeah. they're handing the child over to you. Absolutely. Um, and so I just, I love that that you're involved in that aspect as well. What would you want a caregiver to know about your job mm. and just how you could help them? Yeah. Um, again, I think for a lot of the parents that I work with, um, meeting somebody like me is the first time that they're really having any wherewithal to mental health something. And I think there's going to be a lot of stigma attached to that. You know, people like you um, only show up in certain kinds of, of times or for certain kinds of reasons. Um, you know, I still hear the whole like, oh, I bet you're trying to read my mind right now kind of thing. Right. Um there's a lot of, I think, projections to what psychologists are and how we work and what our motives are, you know, and this kind of sort of like, I'd like to put your brain in a vat kind of thing and study it. And that's all very far from the truth. Um, What I would want anybody to know is that I exist because I believe that there's something really powerful in being listened to and in um, co-creating a space where you can feel safe to share a story that somebody will very actively listen to. I'm not there so much to tell you what to do, but to collaborate with you on what it might mean to move forward. And sometimes you need somebody that's not you to help you come up with those little missing pieces, not because you're not clever enough to find them, but because, you know, kind of like a whole fish and water thing. You're in your own story, sometimes unaware Mm -hmm. of what you might need. So it's really that. See me as somebody that's there to try their best to understand not that they really ever will, but they're trying. And in that trying, they're, they're trying to create something that is beyond conversational, something that points towards your active healing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's really beautiful. So if other hospitals are interested mm-hmm. in having a program mm-hmm. like this, mm-hmm. similar to this, yeah. is that something that they could reach out to you about, sure, come yeah. and shadow you, oh, absolutely. come and learn more? Absolutely. My goodness. Um, I don't want this to be a Le Bonheur thing. I mean, I feel very dedicated to Le Bonheur, but I would argue I feel more de- dedicated to the families I serve. Mm-hmm. And so I want this to be a about the families thing. So if other hospitals are interested in starting something similar and would want to glean or feel like they could glean from my experiences, yeah. I mean, I think in a way it's 
our due diligence. And by our, I mean folks that are committed to working for others Mm -hmm. to share what we've learned to benefit that greater good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I encourage you, if you're listening from anywhere else and um, this is something that you think, gosh, I wish our hospital has it. As as some of the LeBonner employees said to you, I can't believe we haven't for this long. Please reach out. You can obviously reach out to us and we will get you in touch with Dr. Torres. Sure. But um, I just would love to see this in every hospital. I think every Absolutely. hospital could use this. Every hospital, but especially children's hospitals, could use someone like you who is there because so much in uh, especially in healthcare mm-hmm. but especially healthcare of children is that it's a family centered care right. and that the focus cannot just be on let's heal the child right. it's got to be and there's research that shows that if the parents or caregivers are there more and more mm-hmm. often the child often gets better more quickly right. and and so our hope is that that and that's part of why the fund exists. Our hope at the fund and your hope is that we are trying to take care of the family as a whole, the that's siblings, right. the parents, the that's caregivers. Right. You know, at the fund, if we can help you have some less fears and worries of your financial means right. or your counseling means or or whatever it may be, that hopefully you can be more involved and we can take some stressors off right. of you. Right. Neither you nor I or my team or your team can change the fact that the child is sick and in the hospital. If we could, we would do it in a heartbeat, but we can't change that. Mm -hmm. But hopefully what we can do is just be someone else Mm -hmm. that listens and is there Mm -hmm. and hopefully take some of the stressors that you have off of you so you can be the best caregiver that you can possibly be. Um, And I was just going to touch on just how the Four Spence Fund will collaborate with Mm -hmm. you Mm You will often see, I think you touched on it earlier, but um, especially if it's a family that has left Lebonner, you know, they cannot be under your care anymore because they're not patients there anymore. And so you will sometimes refer them to us for additional counseling. That's exactly right. So that's one of the things that is so important, I think, for a lot of parents is that they continue that kind of therapeutic space. Yes, the, the child has been discharged and that's such wonderful news, but they're still in a place of healing, of mm-hmm. making sense of what's happened and how they move forward with their child. And so to continue to have that dedicated space is more than just self-care. It's stabilizing themselves and the family. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. reaching out to you guys has been such a blessing for me, mm-hmm. such an important part to how I can continue helping families by connecting them with you. Yeah. And we found even through the years, you know, that families will leave and will, you know, discharge from the hospital and, um, and they'll actually think that they're doing okay because sure. there's, sp- this is supposed to be a celebration. Sure. We finally made it home. Sure. Others are going to get to meet him or her or, you know, and, and th- so they they maybe actually don't accept counseling right away. Right. And then they get down the road right. and the dust is settled right. and they yeah. realize this is our new normal and yeah. it looks different than I thought it would. Sure. Or all that support we had is not quite because other people's lives continue to move. Absolutely. And, and then all of a sudden, and then we find too that PTSD is a real thing. Absolutely. That they start realizing they're still hearing the dings right. in their sleep and they still think that yep. something's going to go off or they're, you know, the telephone rings. I mean, my husband and I talked about that, that 
the telephone ringing in the middle of the night when your child's in the hospital is one of the worst sounds you can hear. Absolutely. And it it continued yeah. after Forrest died of the telephone ringing literally made your breath stop, even mm. knowing he was gone. There yeah. wasn't anybody to tell me there was bad news. Yeah. But you just couldn't not. The sound of a breast pump for me sure. brought back some PTSD sure. because I pumped so often with him yeah. that then when we brought home a second child. And those are things that I don't think you're quite aware of. Right. And so, you know, what we hope with the Forcements Fund or even just any families listening, you know, you could always reach out to us directly or back out to Dr. Torres or your staff at Labonner and be honest and say, hey, I'm struggling. Mm-hmm. Is there somebody that can help? Is yep. there somebody that can? And it takes a step of you acknowledging That's right. that you're struggling and then seeking the help that you need. That's and right. hopefully um, the help can be provided to you. Yeah. We just want to say thank you so much. I mean, I cannot talk more about what a gift you are to Labonner and the families that you serve well, you. and what a gift you are to Memphis. And I really do truly hope that families, staff uh, take you up on what you're able to offer. And then even other hospitals that can listen to this and say, this is a program that could transform sure. our hospital. It yeah. could transform the care the way that we're taking care, because it is so much about family-centered care. It mm-hmm. is not just about making sure that the child gets mm-hmm. the care that they need, but the whole family. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. I really hope from this that um, it is a learning and a hopeful step for other hospitals to be able to take to say, let's let's learn more. Yeah, Let's I, do what we can to maybe put this in place mm-hmm. in 2023, 2024, yeah. but let's start yeah. working that way. Yeah. Is there anything else you think we should know before we go? Um, well, I guess for anybody that's listening, um, if you've had an experience that's brought you to to a children's hospital, um, then I hope that this segment just has you evaluate that journey and where you are in it and whether you feel settled with it. And if you don't, what it might mean to talk to somebody, not necessarily somebody like me, but somebody that you can fight in or somebody like me, you know, to consider that if you're not but maybe you work at a children's hospital. Um, yeah, to consider what it means to have many adults there um, who are very afraid and who don't know how to speak up and ask for help um, that could just really benefit from a dedicated space to acknowledge where they are and how much that would benefit your sole mission of caring for the child. Because like was was said many times here, um, it's working with the family system. Working with the child is important, but to... Um, bolster the parents and help them find some stability absolutely benefits the child as well. So everybody wins. Yeah. Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Torres. Um, It was a joy and honor to officially meet you and have you here in our podcast studio today. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our latest episode. We hope that this podcast is a resource for you and a source of support. Whether you are facing illness in your own family or want to walk beside other families dealing with childhood illness, we want the stories, wisdom, and knowledge shared to give you hope. Episodes will be released bi-weekly, so be sure to subscribe today.